I think in 20 or 30 years, people look back on the bad old days and say, oh yeah, they used to have these terrible infectious diseases that would cause problems because people didn't know how important it was to keep viruses and bacteria out of indoor air, but now we know. This is Culture at a Crossroads with David Mann. Welcome back to the show that explores the intersection of faith and culture in Canada. Today's episode is brought to you by Woodcrafters Custom Woodworking in Brecon. All right, back on the show with me from the University of Toronto, leading epidemiologist, Dr. David Fisman. Thanks so much for joining. Thanks again for, for having me on. Dr. Fisman, where are we with COVID now? What we have now is we've got an endemic threat. So we've got, unfortunately... We've got a situation where this very nasty virus is now kind of part of our background noise along with other respiratory infections that have themselves come back because we've stopped um, stopped some of our disease control measures that we had in place for SARS-CoV-2. I would say before I forget, one of the really great learnings though out of the pandemic, certainly my understanding of how respiratory diseases spread is totally different now than it was two years ago. And I've learned a ton from my colleagues who do um, aerosol science and engineering and physics in terms of how aerosols work. And I think what we've learned is, um, you know, the reason masks were so effective against these other diseases, because they're all spread by aerosols. And I think that, you know, over the next decade, especially as people try to figure out, well, you know, how much are we going to be working from home? How much do we want people back together in office settings? How are we going to get people confident in dining out and going to gyms again? Because I think there are a lot of businesses that are still struggling. I I truly believe that a lot of the key to that is starting to look at indoor air and shared air, the way our ancestors looked at water and disease 100, 150 years ago. They started to realize, okay, well, you know, when we have groups of people in a city, you know, there's human waste that goes into the river or the lake, and you have to do something to clean that up before you drink it again, or you're going to get epidemics. I think we can start to understand that we're in a similar situation with indoor air. And the good thing is we don't have to invent technologies. The technologies are there. You know, we know how to ventilate buildings, and we know how to filter air with HEPA filters or what have you, or with masks while we're waiting to do that stuff. We just need to figure out how to, you know, how to implement this. I appreciate you have a very Christian lens on things um, in terms of, you know, again, I'm Jewish, I'm not Christian, so I, I'm, I'm hoping I'm not going to, you know, say something wrong or say something out mm-hmm. of turn. But I mean, you know, my, my understanding of Jesus' teachings is a lot of it is about equity, thinking about other people who are maybe less fortunate than you are and putting yourself in their shoes. And, you know, this whole idea of, of doing to other people as you'd have them to do to you, that to me is equity, right? And I think one of the things we've learned, which is not great about Canadian society during this pandemic, is we have a lot of inequity. A colleague of mine has put it this way, that the, the postal code trumps genetic code. You know, if you want to look at health risk, we've got all this kind of high-powered research that focuses on people's DNA and their genetic risk. In fact, we can tell you a lot more about what your risk is by, you know, what's the income in your postal code. Statistics Canada had a really valuable piece of work 
where they looked at race, ethnicity, and poverty in Canada, and how that affected your risk of dying of COVID. And it's startling. It was kind of a one-day story in the media. Canadian press picked it up. I don't think anyone else did. But if you look at that paper, what they found is that they, basically, they, they looked at white and non-white Canadians, and they looked at income. And what they found is if you were a Black Canadian, you had an increased risk of dying of COVID relative to if you're a white Canadian. And if you were Black and low income, your risk relative to if you were white and not low income was fivefold higher. Wow. And, and there's a lot of unpacking to do there in terms of where does that risk come from and, you know, what mm-hmm. kinds of jobs are people working at and, you know, how empowered are they, for example, to stay home if they're sick and, and so forth. But that's a 400% increase in risk of death that we can predict just based on how much money you earn and the color of your skin. And I, I don't think that's how we see ourselves as a society. I mean, I, would, I wouldn't have told you two, three years ago that, you know, that if we have a pandemic, I'm going to be able to tell you who's, gonna, who's most likely to die based on what color their skin is and how, you know, how big their bank account is. But in fact, that's, that's one of the starkest things that's emerged. And I think that's an equity story, you know, and that's, that's a community story. And that's about, you know, looking after each other. So I, I, you know, I, I think we have a lot of work to do in terms of looking out for one another and not mm. just looking out for ourselves. I'm glad you raised that. If we could flush this out just a little bit more, what is it about the socioeconomics that plays such a factor in helping someone who is uh, more affluent than someone who isn't? Yeah, I think I think a lot of it has been things like work from home. So so there's a whole bunch of different dimensions to this. Yeah. A lot of this initially was probably simply the, the the ability to work remotely. And I think you know what you see is is more affluent folks are having tons of covid since the spring. Uh but now they're vaccinated of course going into that on a background of vaccination so you you have much less severe disease. Because for the first couple of years of pandemic, the pandemic, folks who, who were, you know, in the service industry and white collar jobs were able to do things remotely. If you are working on a factory floor or you're working in a slaughterhouse or you're working in, you know, in an Amazon warehouse or a bakery, I mean, these are some of the places where we had huge COVID outbreaks in on Ontario, for example. There's some funny history here in terms of society's willingness to act about problems sort of depends on who's being injured. Uh, a story about a, uh, a cook named Mary Mallon, who's probably better okay. known in history as Typhoid Mary. So Mary was a very good cook, apparently, and worked for a bunch of affluent families in New York City around ni- 1900. I can't remember the exact dates. But these were, these were rich families. One of the families she worked for was the president's banker. It was Teddy Roosevelt's banker's family. And they had a bunch of kids. And the kids got typhoid and a couple of them died. And the family, they didn't really have well, you know, well-established public health departments or anything at that point. Mm-hmm. The family actually hired a t- t- detective <laughs> to figure out what was going on. And they kind of figured out that it was, the, it was this cook who disappeared. It was Mary. Now, at that time, typhoid would have been a leading cause of death among children in New York City. And what made it different, and Mary got tracked down, she actually spent um, the last part of her life imprisoned on um, this governor's island in New York. 
because she wouldn't have her gallbladder taken out. She refused to undergo surgery, which is not, not unreasonable given what surgery was in 1900. They incarcerated her for life on Governor's Island. Now, this is at the, a time when lots of people were dying from typhoid because, you know, you didn't have clean drinking water. But it was who got sick and who died that really moved the needle and started people, you know, founding public health departments and putting in, in, into place regulation around clean food and drink and clean water. So, you know, to me, one of the silver linings for us at U of T is, is we had a really generous gift from a foundation. I'm going to name check them. The Bora Miller Foundation gave us a gift for um, an institute for pandemics, and U of T is now funding that as well. One of the difficulties with the University of Toronto is it's so big that people don't necessarily connect in different parts of the university, but it's got us in public health connected with folks at the engineering school. And this is, I think, going to be, you know, the last part of my career is indoor air and infectious diseases. It's a really interesting thing, and it's directly relevant to health equity. And I think there's a lot that we can do. And ultimately, I think, you know, I think in, I think in 20 or 30 years, people look back on the bad old days and say, oh, yeah, they used to have these terrible infectious diseases that would cause problems because people didn't know how important it was to keep keep viruses and bacteria out of indoor air, but now we know so that doesn't happen anymore. Mm. I, I hope that's how the story ends 20 years from now. It's like sewers. You don't, you, you don't think of it, right? But it is important. And I mean, an eye-opener for me during, during the pandemic was when we started talking about schools as risk settings, it's like <laughs> there are schools in the city of Toronto that have no mechanical ventilation system. You know, they're just basically a brick shell. And the government has started to retrofit those, and there's been both federal and provincial funding for that. That's so interesting what you say, the comparison to the shared water and that story that you shared from the states. But this notion of equity and trying to, again, just share information with the public in a way that they would come to a place to see others as themselves. And the Christian like scriptures show not just treating others the way you want to be treated, but actually to put them above yourself. And that, in a lot of ways, when it, you say it's a global problem, like in, this should really compel us to see missions opportunities in ways that we maybe haven't before. Absolutely. You know, I, 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 th- I think there's, there's so much to be done. And uh, unfortunately, I mean, not to, not to um, y- you know, cast too many aspersions on, on institutional public health, but you know, the, the messaging has to start with the WHO. It has to start with CDC and Public Health Agency of Canada. Cracking a window makes a huge difference, right? Uh, just, we do this uh, at U of T where, where we teach. I'm in an old building called the Haltane Building. The university's put up some nice filtration units there because it's not well ventilated. But we also just, you know, open the window a crack when we teach. And if you have a carbon dioxide monitor, which you know, I have one. Um, it's a great index of how well vent- ventilated a space is. And you see it, ventilation really changes when you open a window. And actually, you saw that really early on. The U.S. CDC had data from schools in, in the state of Georgia where they showed that just opening windows and doors reduced COVID transmission by half in school settings. You know, the, I mean, it's really... You know, the physicists and engineers laugh at us, it, 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 the medical people, because they're like, well, yeah, of course, that's how this stuff works. I mean, one of the really interesting historical additional learnings through this has been 
the stuff that I learned as an infectious disease fellow mostly is rooted, I didn't know this, in a textbook from around the time of Typhoid Mary. It's a 1910 textbook by a guy named Charles Chapin from Rhode Island Hospital, where I did a year of my residency. And Chapin didn't have the tools to really understand aerosols. And he was reacting to a Victorian idea that disease was spread by miasmas, and he knew about bacteria. And so he he told people, no, you know, it's droplets that with bacteria in them that spread disease, and they don't go very far. And that's sort of been handed down generation to generation in hospital infection control. But we know a lot more now than we knew in 1910, but we're not really using that information. As I say to people, you know, if you've ever made sourdough starter, you know, all you need to do is put, you know, flour, water, and I think a little bit of sugar in a jar and leave it open. And it turns into sourdough. Those yeasts come from somewhere. You know, they're in the they're in the air around us. And there's lots of stuff that's in the, the air around us. So we need a paradigm shift in public health and medicine where people need to start appreciating how important respiratory aerosols are and how many tools we actually have to deal with that. What do you think this will mean for planning like large events, ventilation at concerts and places where we jam people together? I think we need to find out. I, you know, I, I have a friend who's been, I live right down the street from the Danforth Music Hall. Mm. And I have this huge, endless kind of FOMO thing going on where I go past their marquee. And <laughs> it's a lot of musicians who I would love to see. I'm a little bit scared of indoor air. And I know from my friend's sneaky measurements that that concert hall doesn't have great ventilation and you're in there with, you know, 2,000 other people breathing in what they breathe out. I would love to see more leadership from government on this because I, I think it's, I think it's smart. It's, it's a smart investment. Yeah. I mean, you can't always retrofit everything and you can't always fix everything, but we do have lots of tools that we can use to make indoor air safer. Uh, we, we can use filtration. We can use high room, uh, UV, germicidal UV. In fact, in Hong Kong, they're about probably a year and a half ahead of us in terms of putting into place regulations for restaurants in terms of restaurants being required to upgrade their ventilation and filtration. And then if they can't upgrade their ventilation and filtration, it's acceptable to use high room UV radiation instead. UV radiation was used in the 1950s mm -hmm. to prove that tuberculosis was airborne. These amazing experiments done where Riley and Wells and I can't remember the name of their collaborator, some of the people who initially figured out uh, how aerosol transmission of infectious disease works, mm -hmm. they did a project at the Baltimore VA where they put guinea pigs up on the roof connected to the tuberculosis wards by ducts with kinks in them. So splatter, heavy particles can't move through ducts that have right angles in them. But aerosol can, because it's basically smoke. And what they found was that when they, when the ducts had ultraviolet sources in them, ultraviolet radiation bangs up DNA and RNA, breaks it. The guinea pigs stayed safe. And when they didn't have ultraviolet, the guinea pigs got tuberculosis. Uh, so that was actually the initial work that showed that tuberculosis moves through the air over long distances. And people have been using that technology, for example, in homeless shelters where TB has been a problem to keep TB risk down. But we could be using those in other spaces. And in fact, in Hong Kong, for example, there's a couple of papers about 
outbreaks in restaurants in Hong Kong pre and post UV. And it really does seem to make a difference in terms of people's risk of infection. The nice thing about dealing with indoor air is also it's not just for COVID or it's not just for flu or it's not just for this, not just for that. Things like ventilation and filtration. My colleague Jeff Siegel at, at U of T has been doing this for years. He's a big advocate of ventilation as an equity issue because when kids are learning in well-ventilated classrooms, they seem to learn better. It's not just the viruses, though we'd like to get rid of the viruses. There's lots of other stuff that accumulates in air through the course of a, of a day. And, and giving people fresh air makes their brains work better as well as keep them safe from infection. And, you know, what we've seen with a lot of different infectious diseases, including the RSV and flu and pneumococcal disease that are resurging now, is the stuff we did for COVID, as imperfect as it was, actually made those diseases go extinct for about a year and a half. This really is impactful stuff. We should be able to markedly reduce the risk of airborne infectious diseases for the population, have a lot of fringe benefits too. But, you know, it's like when they built the sewers in Toronto, it required investment and it took time. And, you know, it's public health is always hard because when you invest in public health, what you're doing is paying for stuff not to happen. If you lay out some money and build a Ferris wheel by the waterfront, you know, everyone can say, oh, cool, we built a Ferris wheel. <laughs> you know, you paid for something mm -hmm. with public health is you lay out money and then, you know, you don't get an epidemic and nobody gets too excited about that because they assume you wouldn't have had one anyway. So it's, it's a problematic field of endeavor, creating the non-occurrence of events. It's, hard, it's a hard sell. Well, just uh, in closing, I, last time we chatted, you mentioned your great appreciation of those who have gone before you in in the study of public health, and a lot of those have stemmed from the Judeo-Christian faith. A lot of this comes to for your, your line of work of being really informed. I mean, you're an expert on diseases and how they travel, and I would imagine that is having an impact on you as a person of just making you a more compassionate man because you want these people to be free of these diseases if we were more informed, if we were better read on, you know, public health and, and symptoms that as much as the layman can, would this, you think, impact Canada as a whole and the world as a whole to become people that are more empathetic? Oh, absolutely. And again, I think the onus is on people in public health to themselves actually understand how these diseases transmit and then put it in terms that people can understand. I mean, I don't need to tell you, you know, if someone's smoking in your car, I don't need to tap you on your shoulder and say, hey, David, if you roll down your window, there'll be less smoke in your car. You know, you, you'll do that intuitively based on, you know, based on, on lived experience. A lot of people may need someone from public health to say, hey, <laughs> aerosols, the same thing. Infectious aerosols are like cigarette smoke aerosols. Roll down the window, there'll be less COVID in your car. You know, I think if you give people the basic facts and give it to them in a digestible way, A, I think most people do care about others. I do think there's a lot of altruism out there. Um, and B, I think people are smart. And C, I think one of the difficulties public health has gotten into, you've seen some ridiculous guidance come out from, for example, the US CDC had this color-coded chart of different ways that people should act in different circumstances, depending how far or near they are from other people and who's vaccinated. And so it's, it's, it's too complicated. Give people the basics. You can't anticipate every situation. They will problem solve. But, but I do think you need to be honest with people. There's some reluctance around honesty 
for, I think, complicated reasons. But one of the reasons, I think, is that once we acknowledge that disease spreads via shared air, it takes the locus of responsibility away from the individual. You know, your behavior, you did this wrong, you touched the outside of your mask or what have you, and that's why you got COVID, and turns it into an institutional and societal responsibility. Mm. And I think that has implications in terms of liability, in terms of costs, in terms of, you know, who needs to lead the charge. And I think that leads to some of the foot dragging. I do think most people actually have a degree of empathy and a degree of, you know, willingness to do things on behalf of others, particularly if they if they have a kind of a face or mental image of who they're helping. That's a full overview of COVID and where we're at. Really appreciate your time. As always, uh, we've been trying to become more empathetic as people entering into, I think is the Latin for that, uh, into entering into diseases and how they impact people and uh, appreciate all the work that you're doing at the University of Toronto and, and beyond. Dr. David Fisman, pleasure. Nice to talk to you, David. And if you want to find out more information on David Fisman and some of the different interesting uh, historic things that he cited, we're going to have those linked for you at the show notes, davidmanmedia.com slash podcast. Today's episode was brought to you by the Imri Group in Woodville. Wow, so interesting just how HVAC engineers, doctors, and disease infection specialists all have to work together on this. Coming away from the conversation, I'm reminded again of my limits. I don't know about you. Yeah, Dr. Fisman, he's a smart guy. He has expertise on diseases and a good base understanding for ventilation. But like he said, he... And his colleagues are relying now on the engineering faculty at the university. Isn't it humbling how dependent we really are on other people? I mean, we need to borrow from other skill sets, from other people to be able to solve problems, just like you need various people to build a home. And it leaves me reminded that I can only do so much. There is, though, someone who understands it all, someone who has this knowledge that we're uncovering and who gives us the ability to tap into that. And this it comes directly out of one of my favorite hymns. It says it all. Immortal, invisible, God only wise. Where there isn't wisdom, there has to be wisdom. God's got it. Next time on Culture at a Crossroads. Since the infancy of social media and more specifically big tech, data has become like currency. So what about if a whole city was designed with this in mind? It just about happened in Toronto. Don't miss my conversation with Globe and Mail reporter and author of the city Google couldn't buy, Josh O'Kane. There are two fundamentally different kinds of organizations. Cities are designed so that people get to have a say, and tech companies are efficient at their very core, which cities are not. And what unfurled... You know, beginning in late 2017 was two and a half years of fights over like who gets to make decisions about the future of cities and what role should companies have in that and what role should the public be playing in that. Thanks for listening today. A reminder that you can access any of our episodes when you head to the Culture at a Crossroads podcast. We do invite you back next week as we once again explore the intersection of faith and culture in Canada, helping to better equip you in following Jesus. Jesus.